What do Harper Lee, Truman Capote, a reverend accused of multiple murders, and a graduate of Harvard with a New York Times non-fiction bestseller all have in common? Well, it's a matter of books, baptism, and blood. But it's also a matter of artistic endeavor, sermonic principles, and an ardent application. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Ladies and gentlemen, Gregory Peck. The world never seems as fresh and wonderful, as comforting and terrifying, as good and evil, as it does when seen through the eyes of a child. For a writer to capture that feeling is remarkable. Perhaps that is why one book the last few years has been so warmly embraced by tens of millions of people. To Kill a Mockingbird, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, just about every other award a book can win. And now, happily, To Kill a Mockingbird becomes a motion picture. Now, Harper, Harper, Lee, 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 she only wrote the one book I've written more than three. My objectives are very limited. I simply want to do the best I can with the talent that God gave me, I suppose. She always seems to be receiving more than she deserves. Honey, she's poaching on my literary preserves. Yes, from Harper Lee we have seen and we've heard. And I'd like to kill more than just that mockingbird. I would like to be the chronicler of small-town, middle-class, southern life. Well, you know, sometimes I really would. I am confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence that you have heard, come to a decision, and restore this man to his family. That was a clip from the 1962 film To Kill a Mockingbird, starring Gregory Peck. Peck won an Oscar for his performance as Atticus Finch, a southern country lawyer who defended a black man falsely accused of rape. Some years back, I had the good fortune to meet Gregory Peck, and on that occasion he gently reminded me that before the film there was the novel of the same title, written by the enigmatic Harper Lee and published in 1960. To Kill a Mockingbird, the following year, received the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. Now, the author at that time was about 35, and her acclaimed work became required reading in many high schools, ensuring that Lee had a continuously handsome income for the remainder of her life. Interestingly, she tended to shun the spotlight, to say the least. Although not entirely reclusive like J.D. Salinger, Harper Lee was, nevertheless, a curiosity. With millions of editions of her singular work published, she enjoyed her privacy, strong drink, and a select friendships with a very few, of which was numbered Truman Capote. In fact, she helped him do his original research for his major work, In Cold Blood. She found in the process that the genre of crime fiction and non-fiction novel writing appealed to her, and particularly when she heard of the case of one Willie Maxwell. Maxwell was an African-American World War II veteran who worked as a sharecropper, a driller, and as a textiler, all the while employing the bestowed title of reverend, for he also served as a Baptist preacher. Very nice, you may think. So why was Harper Lee interested in this good reverend? Well, the answer is that when his wives kept showing up dead, it occurred to her, or moreover the local authorities, that he may have in fact not been that good. And so ensued years of investigation, in fact years became decades, of Harper Lee attempting to write a book that was never completed. 
That is, until a mystery was solved, not only of the murders, but actually the why the writing had not been completed. And that's because of my guest, Casey Sepp. Casey set about to pick up where Harper Lee left off, and in so doing has produced one of the most fascinating books of the decade. The book is entitled Furious Hours. Casey, may I call you Casey? Yes, of course. Thanks so much for having me on. It is wonderful to have you here. And I have to tell you, once I got a copy of the book, I loved it because it's going in so many, um, well, multiple tiered tiered levels. And uh, it's very, very hard to put down. And what I love about it is you start out with, with one theme and then you synthesize it with another. And yet the point is never lost. So there's this dual tracking of the investigation of the murder. And then also why Harper Lee did not eventually finish the work and what was the cause for her, well, impediment in bringing it to being published. Let me ask you, how did you initially get attracted to this to this work? Of course, yeah. So, um, you know, Harper Lee, you've, you've, you've hit the nail precisely. You know, for so many years, um, her public-facing persona had been enigmatic and quiet and a little mysterious, um, although the one thing everyone knew about her was supposedly she would never publish another book. And that was, you know, very interestingly contradicted in 2015 when um, a lawyer who was representing her announced to the world that she would be publishing another book. And that book turned out to be a very early draft of a novel called Ghosts at a Watchman that she had written in the late 1950s when she first moved to New York. It was the original version of the story that became To Kill a Mockingbird. And like a lot of other reporters, I was very interested in that announcement and interested in a lot of the questions and concerns about the provenance of that manuscript and about Harper Lee's ability to consent to publication. So I went down to Alabama uh, to report for The New Yorker on that story. And while I was there, I found out about this other project of hers, this other true crime project that she had started in the 70s and seemingly worked on well into the 80s and the 90s and possibly even into the aughts. And I was awfully interested in the Reverend Willie Maxwell and, and of course, interested in anything that Harper Lee had undertaken um, and so that that was how I found out about it in 2015, around the time that Ghost at a Washington was announced. Well, in your investigation, and there's two parts, uh, one into the Reverend and the other one, of course, into Harper Lee herself. To what extent did you have welcoming voices that uh, allowed you in and were willing to discuss matters? And to what extent did you have rather severe voices, perhaps, or at the very least cold voices that uh, uh, turned asunder and did not want to give you their attention? Sure, that's, that's kind of a brilliantly posed question because, of course, you know, the, the Reverend and Harper Lee are, are tricky to investigate for very different reasons. And, you know, the Reverend was, was himself murdered in 1977, and Harper Lee, since 1960, when To Kill a Mockingbird came out, has been had been pretty private and had been very conspicuous in letting her friends and family know that she didn't want them to talk about her with the press. And so looking into both of those lives was, was tricky in very different ways. But it must also be said that the Maxwell case was so infamous in this part of Alabama where it happened. And, you know, it was for a lot of the people involved, the most extraordinary thing that had ever happened there. You know, these were tremendously um, terrifying murders and the civil and criminal trials that accompanied the original crime, you know, just left an impression. And so even if you were a child at the time, you remember the Reverend Maxwell and, and you remember these cases. So there was a lot of residual memory and knowledge in the community where this happened in Alabama. And those folks were, of course, eager to talk about it because it remained such a seminal event in their lives. And, you know, for a lot of the lawyers, it was the most extraordinary case they ever worked on. And for a lot of the law enforcement officers. It was, you know, again, a curiosity in their career. Um, But on the Harper Lee side of things, um, I just had very lucky timing. Because of Ghost at a Watchman, many of her friends uh, were eager to talk about her because they were eager to learn more about her condition. Mm -hmm. She'd had a severe stroke and um, had moved home to Alabama. So many of her friends in New York and around the country hadn't been able to see her and um, were, were not as up-to-date on her condition. And so they were eager to talk because they were eager to, you know, learn more and, and aid in, in that kind of contemporary investigation. Um, and then when she, she died one year into my reporting, 
there was another group of individuals who felt that the kind of omerita of Harper Lee, this agreement that they would not talk about her, um, expired when she did. And that, you know, once she had died, they had these stories um, that, you know, they would never have shared in her lifetime because they didn't want to embarrass her. They didn't want to upset her by sharing the intimacies of their friendships. But once she had passed, um, there was another group of people who started to share stories about um you know, her, her life and her struggles in particular as a writer. And, you know, again, not that not that they were necessarily embarrassing, but to talk about your friend's struggles with addiction or depression or writer's block, you know, was not something they wanted to do in her lifetime. But, but almost immediately, they felt that these were stories that would deepen the public understanding of her and, you know, really allow readers who had loved her work for so long understand more about um, the complexities of her life and, and the difficulties of her life as a writer. Well, before we get into William Maxwell, and, and we will devote a considerable amount of time talking about the, the case or cases involved, um, let's just for a second continue to talk about Harper Lee, because I'm very, very curious about the friendship between Truman Capote and Harper Lee, uh, particularly for one facet of Truman Capote. Um, as loved and beloved and admired as he is uh, or was, there are also those who would say that he could be quite vindictive and, and rather snarly and nasty and possessive. Um, was she comfortable sharing the genesis of possibly doing this book with Truman Capote? And did he return the favor and offer to help her in her research? Gosh, I mean, that's a that's a really delightful question. And um, of course, what you're referencing is this, this fact that when Capote got this assignment from The New Yorker to go and look at this small town murder story in Kansas, he took Harper Lee along and, you know, they, they took the train out to Kansas and she was there not only for his first round of reporting in 1959, but she returned with him several times and made her own friendships in that part of the world and got to know many of the people who were involved in, in cold blood and be, befriended his fact checker at the New Yorker too. And, um, he paid her actually $900 for her assistant <laughs> research. Um, and, you know, and then she, she even went on, she was so, so involved that she um, copy edited and reviewed the final proofs of, of In Cold Blood before it ran in this serialized form in The New Yorker. So, right, she had had this deep involvement in his true crime project, um, and they remained friends into the 70s and 80s. It was a fraught friendship, to your point. He could be quite vindictive. Um, mm. She was very disapproving, despite her own struggles with drinking of, of his use of drugs and alcohol, and um, also seems to have really, you know, just in, in all the ways he was so public and such a spectacle, she, of course, was private and, and shied away from that sort of publicity. So there were, there were these deep ruts of disagreement. So while he had involved her in his work, she never seems to have involved him in hers. And right at the time she was assisting with In Cold Blood, she actually had gotten back the page proofs of Mockingbird, but never had him look at them. Um, he did provide a blurb for the book, but he wasn't involved in the drafting or the revision or anything like that. And so not surprisingly, it seems when she got a hold of this story about the Reverend Maxwell, she doesn't seem to have told Capote about it. And she undertook her own project, did not ask him to come along, and he doesn't even seem to have known about it because, you know, he lived until 1984 and they saw one another in those years, but he makes no mention of this project of hers. So there's no reason to believe she involved him in it. As well, ever, she was quite private about her work. What's interesting about Capote is uh, he had key women friends and he, it's, you know, as a side note, he was very good friends with Joanna Carson, Johnny Carson's uh, second wife. And um, they were very tight, very close, and constant phone conversations going on. And it seems to be the kind of role that for at least some time Harper Lee fulfilled in his life. So there was maybe a, a bit of a transference, or I don't know. But now back to the actual case itself. Um, when did you first get light of uh, of this event? When you went down to Alabama? Yeah, so in 2015, um, when, when Ghost Had a Watchman was announced, is really when I found out. Um, quite oddly, you know, even though it was such an interesting matter at the heart of this book she was going to call The Reverend, not much was known about her work on, on this project. And so, you know, there was a biography of Harper Lee that came out about 10 years ago, and it's it's but a few pages there. And there was a memoir by a journalist who moved to Monroeville and got to know her and her sister. And it's about a page and a half there. So there was this incongruity between the impression that Harper Lee had made in Alabama when she was working on this book and the degree to which it was public knowledge. 
that the wider world knew of, of her interest and her attempt. And so one of the things that was immediately clear to me when I learned about the Maxwell case was how much more extensive her work had been than anyone seemed to know, both that she had, um, you know, actually drafted some materials that she had moved to this town for nine months to look into the case and that she had had an ongoing relationship with this part of Alabama the same way she had with Kansas when she was helping with In Cold Blood. So, you know, over and over again, as I looked into the original case, it became clear that Harper Lee herself had interacted with these people and that she had interviewed them about their lives or about their professional role in the Maxwell murders it was just over and over again clear to me that this was a tremendously serious effort and, and that this had been, you know, a tremendous project of hers in the years after Mockingbird. To what extent have any, has anyone had access to her original manuscripts and, and, uh, and research data that she gathered? So not much. Um, a tiny bit of it has been made public, um, and that's mostly because of um, there's a lawyer at the heart of my book, and, and he was the Reverend Maxwell's personal attorney for about mm. 10 years in, in many civil and criminal cases. And his family um, has some of her kind of work product and research materials. But as ever with Harper Lee, there's there's really a mystery at the heart of her literary archives. So the same lawyer who was in charge of her affairs and um, who announced the publication and shepherded the publication of Ghosts at a Watchman um, has chosen not to make much else public. And so there's, you know, there's a real question, not just about this true crime project, but about some other novels she attempted to write in the 1960s and about her correspondence. You know, we were talking about her um, almost lifelong friendship with Capote, but so far none of their letters have emerged. Um, there was a collected, you know, set of Capote's letters many years ago, although none from Harper Lee. And, you know, there's reason to believe in that archive there would be letters he wrote her and some of their childhood collaborations and the juvenilia they produced together. So there's really a lot of literary material that could be in her archive. It's just um, it has not been made public yet. From your assessment, was she confident or beleaguered with self-doubt? Gosh, I think beleaguered is, if you can believe it, sort of a soft word for it. Um, she really, you know, so 1960, you mentioned this, but 1960, when Mockingbird came out, Harper Lee was 34 years old, and she had published some in her college newspaper and in the College Humor magazine, but um, she had not really published, you know, as a professional writer before Mockingbird. So that was such a tremendous literary event, and the novel just did so well that she seems to have been stymied by that success. Mm. And except for a few short articles, she, she really didn't publish again until 2015. And in the 1960s, when, you know, for a little while, when she would sometimes answer questions or do interviews, she would mention these other novels she was working on, and then she stopped talking about even those. And with the Maxwell case, she talked to everyone in town, and when she was interviewing people, she would talk to them about the work, but she still wouldn't do interviews with the press, and she wouldn't speak publicly about her ideas or her process. And a lot of that seems to have been a kind of shyness or reticence or fear even around writing. You know, here was the thing she was most well-known for, but the thing she refused to talk about. And even family and friends who were tremendously involved in her life and, you know, with whom she was you know, socially engaged, and she would travel, you know, she would sort of talk about everything under the sun except for her writing. And they, they chose not to ask her what she was working on. They chose not to even ask if she was working. And so the knowledge we have is sometimes from letters where she would mention it or these kind of surreptitious observations people would make about what she was doing or the books on her desk or, you know, something at the typewriter. But um, she really just seems to have withdrawn around the issue of writing. Um, and so unlike someone even like Salinger, where, you know, despite his tremendous reclusion and seclusion, there is a little bit of knowledge around his work. You know, things mm -hmm. trickle out from mm -hmm. friends or paramours. Form, or former like lover, the young girl he lived yeah, with. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that that we, we know a tiny bit about his process and what he was working on and projects he's completed. With Harper Lee, she really just would talk about anything except the work. Um, so that's, again, why there's such excitement over, you know, what might be in the archives, because, of course, if she kept any of it, there could just be a lot. So it's a simple case, really, or well, not so simple, but it is a case of the terror of success. 
Absolutely. I think she was just totally bowled over by what happened. And, you know, another thing that's important to note, you mentioned in um, your your early comments about Mockingbird, that it was almost immediately canonized in the kind of um, school-age canon. Mm. It was also awarded the Pulitzer Prize. And so you can imagine, you know, if it had only been one thing, you know, if it had mm. only been a bestseller, then she could try and write a critical darling. But having been both a critical darling and a bestseller, you know, she was really just besieged by the kind of expectations from every direction. So at her heart, do you think that she felt unworthy of the accolades which she received? I think it might have been. So I, to my mind, some of the most interesting um, archival materials I got to use for the book are these um, letters and the kind of collective correspondence from Harper Lee's agents. Um, which they donated to Columbia University. And, you know, it's some things she wrote them, it's some things they wrote her and her sisters. And there's a little bit of insight there. And one of the things you learn when you start going through all that, and I think one of the things that's become a little more public since the draft Ghost Set of Watchmen was published is the extreme degree to which Harper Lee was edited. Mm. And I think that, you know, it's it's a wonderful story about how editors and agents can help a writer produce the best possible work and take a raw idea and shape it and organize it and give it a structure that, that just really makes it something more extraordinary than what the writer might have been able to do on, on her own. And I don't think there should be anything embarrassing about that, but I sometimes wonder if that was part of what was going on for Harper Lee. You know, the book she had wanted to write was Go Set a Watchman, and it was tremendously complicated with its political vision and its kind of moral indictments. And the book that she became so famous for, which is aesthetically perfect, you know, has slightly more palatable politics, has a slightly more streamlined structure. And all of the things, the kind of modifications and changes and edits that her editor, um, it was Lippincott who published that book, and that her agents encouraged her to make, um, might well have felt like compromises to her and might well have felt, to your point, kind of on the other side, was, was she embarrassed or did she just feel unworthy or was it just such a complicated feeling about all of the success it's hard to know, but I, I think you're you're right to, to wonder about it. And I, I hope that for readers who love To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the things they learn from Furious Hours is just how laborious a process it can be for a writer to make a perfect book. You know, they don't drop they don't drop from the sky. They aren't delivered by the stork. They're Absolutely. made through a tremendous amount of work. And, you know, again, I don't think she had anything to be embarrassed about, but I do sometimes wonder if if she just thought, you know, the world thinks I sat down and wrote this book in one sitting, when in actuality it took many years and many revisions, and it is the product of a kind of collaboration. Yes, well, tailoring takes a lot of cutting of cloth. You are listening to Watching America. We'll be right back. This is Watching America with host Dr. Alan Campbell. I am completely besotted with delight to have our guest, uh, Casey Sepp, who has a New York Times bestselling book, and most deservedly. It's called Furious Hours. Uh, It is a true crime story type of work, which looks at the life of Harper Lee, why she couldn't finish a major tomb, which she wanted to write, and it never came to fruition. Also related, added to that, if that weren't enough, the 
well, nefarious dealings of a man called Willie Maxwell, the Reverend Willie Maxwell. And I promised earlier that we would spend uh, some time devoted to the actual series of crimes. Why don't we start there, if that's all right, uh, looking at Willie Maxwell. I know he was born in rural Alabama in 1925. There aren't uh, complete records, which is not unusual uh, for African-American persons of that era. Uh, tell us what you know and about the progression of incidents. Now, he, he had a, uh, attained the, the rank of sergeant, I believe, in, in the U.S. Army. Uh, he'd been in the Midwest uh, serving, not abroad, then later re-enlisted, and then came out and got a series of jobs, which are very curious and interesting, particularly because of the notes that people made about his character of being meticulously clean and tidy, despite the dirty nature of some of the jobs he did. And that comes into play in a significant way with the murders. So I'm just going to let you have it, Casey. Sure, absolutely. I mean, you're you're right to point to um, two kind of distinguished aspects of, of the Reverend's reputation. And one has to do with his military service. Um, he was awarded several medals and served with distinction. And so came home, you know, a celebrated veteran and, and had re-enlisted, so didn't just do the minimum, um, and, and came home with a lot of promise. And, and once back in Alabama, I think that, you know, again, a, another way in which his life was typical of a lot of African-Americans is despite that distinguished service, there were not a lot of opportunities waiting for him when he got home to Alabama. Yes. And just as the Army had been segregated, so too was the South he returned to in the late 40s. And once home, um, you know, he went to work for the cotton mill that had actually had one of the military commissions and made the u- very uniforms he would have worn. And, you know, the mills there were segregated and there were better jobs for the white workers than there were for blacks. And he went back to work sharecropping, which is what his mother and father had done. He was quite well regarded um, by, by all of the folks who employed him. And he was a dependable worker and he was a hard worker and he had an accomplished record there. And um, in in some cases, you know, his supervisors were unlikely people like a man who went on to become mayor of the town who just said he was one of the most dependable workers he ever had. And the same thing was true when he went to work pulpwooding, which is this kind of curiosity in the timber industry in the American South where you cut shortwood timber and it goes to pulp mills. And so everywhere the Reverend worked, he was very well regarded. And the same was true in the ministry. You know, he was very sought after for his sermons. He was extremely eloquent. He could quote scripture well. And that was his reputation. And it continued to to rise until 1970. Let me ask you a question, another one, too, yeah. which intrigues me. Sure. Um, you have a, a, a Master's of Philosophy and Theology from Oxford, so clearly you're mm-hmm. interested in theology. What is your take on the Reverend? Uh, people can do bad things and yet still believe, and yet others can do good things and not believe at all and still you know, maintain a pulpit. Based on your theological training and your observation of this man, did you arrive at any conclusion of whether or not his faith on any level was genuine? Gosh, I mean, you've you've beat the bounds of possibility quite well, and I think the thing to say about the Reverend Maxwell is he always swore he was innocent. So his first wife was found murdered. His second wife was found dead under similar circumstances. His brother was found dead under similar circumstances. His nephew was found dead. His stepdaughter was found dead. And after every one of those unusual deaths, the Reverend swore he was innocent. And when asked by members of the press or when asked by members of the legal community, he always swore that he had nothing to do with their deaths and that either he was being framed by someone else or that some malevolent force had caused these deaths and that they were a kind of spiritual trial. And so, you know, you could you could call that a theological psychology or you could you could say that he was simply as ever using his religion as a way to hide his bad deeds, but it's 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 noteworthy to say that, you know, he never admitted involvement in any of these crimes. So at the very and least, it was actually, an, an aberration of conscience, at least. Yes, absolutely. And and in that way, seems to have been consistent with someone who had a, you know, wildly um, charismatic experience of religion. You know, he was he was a young preacher, and he preached even before he had any theological training. And even in a religiously sophisticated community, after you know, after not just one but two deaths, you know, there were still pulpits willing to have him, and still congregations who would say that you know they they believed him. 
and they found it impossible to believe that he had been involved in these deaths. And so there there was that current of belief and of faith in him and in his ministry. And, you know, of course, he made appeals to theological figures like Job, who underwent trials from God, and, you know, their suffering was, was not a sign of, of ill faith, but rather a test of their faith. And so the, the Reverend was a very, you know, sophisticated man, and, and not just entrepreneurial around these life insurance policies, which, you know, every everybody whoever investigated these crimes thinks that he committed them and that the motive was insurance fraud. But there's a know, beautiful was, there's a beautiful quote which I found <laughs> very amusing and I can't recall it right now. Perhaps you can help me. Where somebody the very same thing I did, questioning his faith, and they said, "Well, we don't know if he believed in scripture, but we do know he believed definitely in life insurance policies or something yeah, to that effect." It's a beautiful it's a beautiful quote from Harper Lee. She's, oh, she's actually it, yeah. in a very yeah she's in a very Harper Lee way writing to turn down an interview for someone. And, you know, that person has asked how her investigation is going, and she just says she she can't say for sure whether he believed in Scripture, she can't say for sure whether he believed in voodoo, but she can say that he had had a profound and abiding belief in life insurance. (laughs) Uh, And so, yeah, I just think, you know, it's tricky business to try and discredit people's theology or religion, even in the face of bad acts. And so, you know, of course, there you know, prisons are full of people who have authentic spiritual lives and who've experienced religious conversion either before or after their crimes. And so, you know, all I can say is it is one of the many axes on which I find the Reverend Maxwell fascinating. Yes. Um, and I think the role of a journalist, um, even one with a background in theology or, or even one with the kind of personal faith I have, you know, your role is not to discredit their faith, but to try and understand it. Right. Um, and right. it is certainly true that you know, if you go, you know, knocking on doors around this part of Alabama, there are people who remember the Reverend's preaching, and they were moved by it. <laughs> and, you know, they, they found him, at least early in his ministry, to be, you know, a man of the cloth. And either they attended a funeral he presided over, or they, they heard a sermon, and they were quite moved. And I was so struck. There's a man I interviewed for the book, and he's he's quoted in there, although he's not a very conspicuous character, but you know, he was a mill manager, and he encountered the Reverend only in the pulpwooding business, and even he remembered him quoting scripture and found him to be, you know, one of the most polite men he ever employed. You know, and that's someone Mm. who has absolutely no reason to authenticate or to testify to the kind of religious sensibility of this individual, but he found it necessary to tell me that, you know, 45 years later. And it, it was a salient way of, you know, describing the reverend. And so, yes, it's tremendously interesting. And I think absolutely that kind of, you know, religious experience is one that drew Harper Lee to this case. She obviously, in To Kill a Mockingbird, had, had rendered um, actually one of the best black characters in that novel as Reverend Sykes. Mm-hmm. And she was tremendously interested in the spirituality of African-American persons and, you know, had even recorded in Mockingbird some of these rural superstitions and hoodoo and voodoo, and I think would have been drawn to all of that in this business with Reverend Maxwell. And even there, you know, it's quite hard to know, you know, here we are talking about the kind of sincerity of his Christian belief, but there is wild disagreement over whether or not he actually practiced voodoo. You know, there's no there's no real evidence of it. But again, if you go knocking on doors around this part of Alabama, there is, you know, absolute sincere belief from some people that he must have been a practitioner of voodoo because how else could he have gotten away with the murders? And by what other means would he have been able to cause these deaths without being convicted of homicide? Well, let's go to the actual trials and, and investigations. And there's one key trial. Uh, and in a very short period of time, he's exonerated and uh, is able to walk. Okay, did he testify for himself, or did he rely on an attorney and a lawyer? I mean, some people just have the gift, if you will, of manipulative presence, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, but they just do. And um, how do you interpret that? That the, the the case was resolved very very quickly. So you're you're mentioning so the the first Mrs. Maxwell was found murdered in 1970 and in 1971 the Reverend was acquitted outright acquitted and the, the trial took only one day and you know the the law enforcement officers and the um, 
the district attorney who tried that case would tell you that they lost it for exactly one reason, and that is because their star witness changed her testimony. And a few months after that trial, she would go on to be the second Mrs. Maxwell, so you can understand you know, why they make appeals to her sure. changed testimony. But it is also true that someone who could charm a congregation and someone whose presence could elicit such strong religious feeling might well have been able to do the same with a jury. And and if you imagine, you know, 12, even though they were 12 white jurors at that time, here they were confronted by, you know, a very well-mannered, well-regarded black minister, you know, who, who claimed to have had no involvement, who was literally preaching at a revival the night that his wife was found murdered. And because um, so much of his infidelity and adultery had not yet been made public, you know, they were, they were left with, with only his you know, presence in the community to go off of, and and they acquitted him. And, you know, there indeed was a next-door neighbor who claimed he'd been out all night and um, that, you know, that he had an alibi for the murder. And so, you know, again, that, that case, you know, started to divide opinion, but it was only when that second wife was found dead and, you know, all the way you, you keep going down the list of relatives. And in hindsight, it seems like it should have been obvious. But again, if you inhabit the perspective of people for whom this was a very well-regarded minister and, you know, against whom there had been no such allegations prior to that first wife, it's a little easier to understand why it took so long. It's also the case that, you know, the lawyer who was representing the Reverend Maxwell in, in all of this criminal, all of these criminal investigations was also representing him in, in many civil suits, so over a dozen Civil suits where he was suing. And what were they about? What were the, the civil suits were related to insurance? Yes. Yeah, so all of the insurance cases, you know, in some instances, the insurance company would simply pay up because it was a valid policy. And here mm-hmm. again was a reverend trying to cash out on, you know, a wife on whom he had held these policies. But in the case of his second wife, he had 17 policies from many different companies, and they started to realize that. He was, you know, a repeat client, you might say. And in those instances, they tried to stop payment. And when they refused to pay out, the reverend's lawyer would initiate civil litigation to force them to pay the value of the policy. And so over a dozen times, the same attorney represented him in um, various civil courts to try and get the full value of the policy. And in those instances, it's important not only to say that the reverend was, you know, a very sympathetic um a very sympathetic witness, but also that his attorney was a very sophisticated attorney and had developed a very good legal strategy for prevailing in these civil cases. You know, together they prevailed in in almost a half a million dollars in today's dollars. You know, they recovered quite a lot of the insurance money. So he drove a nice car, I presume. Several. Uh, Yeah. Uh, My question is, where do forensics come into this? I mean, you have decimated bodies that are found Okay, and and in vehicles uh, similar both times, uh, was it incompetency on the part of you know looking for? I mean, DNA wasn't an issue then; um, that was right. uh, you know considered. But I mean, wasn't there anything substantial to go on to make allegations? So there was, and in fact, you know, again, you you have to meet a certain standard in order to bring homicide charges. So, for instance, in the death of the Reverend's first wife, there was an extensive investigation, and, you know, evidence was recovered from the scene, evidence was recovered from the Reverend's house. They were able to find, you know, charred fibers from where he had attempted to burn um, what they believed to be probably the clothes he was wearing when he committed the crime, and they were able to find blood samples because the first Mrs. Maxwell in addition to being placed in the car, was actually bludgeoned to death. And Mm. so, you know, actually at this time in the 1970s, Alabama had quite a sophisticated forensic science department. And in one of these kind of curiosities of history, it had been um, funded and bolstered after the um, completely embarrassing debacle that was the Scottsboro case. So the Scottsboro boys, you know, who were wrongfully Mm -hmm. convicted, Mm -hmm. and over dozens of years these cases were, you know, overturned and their convictions were overturned and you know this this terrible embarrassment for the state a lot of the authorities involved at the state's attorney's office had decided that forensics might well have prevented those false charges and false convictions and so you had sophisticated crime labs in Opelika and in Auburn and they were you know receiving the bodies they were completing very thorough autopsies 
Um, they were assisting the Alabama Bureau of Investigation in investigating these scenes. And the truth of the matter is that was one of my theories going into this, that, that actually there had been probably incompetence or there had not been a thorough enough investigation. But you go and you look at, you know, these are autopsy files in some cases that are dozens of pages long. You know, they did, mm-hmm. you know, complete forensic workups to try and determine if any poisons or foreign substances were inserted into the body. They looked for fingerprints. They looked for the kind of evidence with which you could build a case. And except for the first Mrs. Maxwell and and um, the reverend stepdaughter who was found murdered in 1977, they actually couldn't find enough to declare the death homicide. So forget being able to charge the reverend. They they could not find a sufficient cause of death. And truly, you know, this is part of the reason the public knowledge of this case was 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 so strange because people wondered how was it they couldn't even find a cause of death. See, what I find interesting is here's a a, a person who looks meticulous after you know working with a jackhammer, drilling into cement and doing work which is by its very nature tends to cause filth to fall on one's clothing or what have you and yet he would meticulously walk away as described in your book with a tie and a shirt on and no one would know according to those that worked with him that just 20 minutes prior he'd been in the middle of muck because of skills like that it lends itself to want to conclude that well this is a very adept and clever man at uh you know, backing up his steps and making sure that he doesn't leave any evidence. I mean, am I wrong in that? No, I think absolutely. And of course, what some of these folks who are involved in these investigations would say is, you get better as time goes on. Mm. And the first murder was the sloppiest case. And um, having prevailed there, you know, you you might well have just perfected your technique. And there's a very interesting moment um, in, in one of the subsequent investigations where an Alabama Bureau of Investigation agent is sent to interview two men who the reverend had attempted to enlist as accomplices in one of the murders. And both men indicate, for instance, that he told them with, with some certainty, you know, he would he would tell them exactly where to place the car. He would provide the gloves that they would need to be wearing and that, you know, he would take care of making sure the money they received was not traceable. And I think in all of those instances, you see the kind of preparation and planning that went into these crimes. And it's certainly the case that on the insurance side of things, you know, he was operating at a very sophisticated level, and he was making sure not only that the policies were valid, but that he wasn't paying much in renewal fees. So quite often he was getting a lucrative policy for only a quarter or 50 cents or a dollar. And, you know, he was maintaining these policies with dozens of different companies in several different states. And so if you apply that level of entrepreneurial spirit and care and attentiveness, then it is a little easier to understand why there might not have been enough physical evidence on which to bring these cases forward. This is Watching America. We'll be right back. delight of interviewing Casey Sepp, who has a New York Times best-selling book called Furious Hours, and the subtitle is Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. It's a multi-tiered book, as I described at the outset, because on one level you're looking at uh, an incomplete, unfulfilled book that Harper Lee had worked on for decades, 
And at the same time, you're investigating as you read, uh, because of Casey Sepp's work, the encounters of murder and mayhem uh, performed by a reverend in the South who Harper Lee was investigating herself. And there's, there's two mysteries. One is, how did this man potentially get away if indeed he did commit these murders for so long uh, with various personalities around him, a stepdaughter, wives, people dying, and he having as many as 17 uh, insurance policies, policies out on his second wife who was murdered. How does he get away with that? And at the same time, the second mystery while reading this book is why didn't Harper Lee finish it? Um, I want to go back to a question about your research in doing this. Uh, you are obviously a professional and you are a, a writer, journalist of a sort. Uh, did you have any moments when you were overcome with the reality that you're dealing with the issue of people who have died? Did you visit perhaps any grave sites of the former wives? And was there a moment when you thought, you know, this is not just research. We're talking about lives here. I mean, where you had like an epiphany of a sort. Gosh, I mean, that's such a wonderful question. And the truth is I had it at every moment with this book. So the original crime story involves um, crime within one family. And, and I think that you know, these were crimes that even people who were on the total periphery of this community remember them and were affected by them. And mm. so I was incredibly mindful there. And um, the truth is, with, with every character in the book, um, you know, even with Harper Lee, where on the one hand, you know, she's one of the most tremendously successful writers of all time. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, that success was characterized mostly by one book. And so you're actually in the business of talking to people who watched her struggle for many decades with, with writing and um, with her kind of emotional life. And so I was especially mindful there that, you know, the, those were sensitive interviews in a different way, uh, but but still sensitive. And when it comes to the Reverend Maxwell, um, actually, you know, you, you asked, did I visit the graves? And the book ends with a um, kind of look at where these characters died, since so much of the book is about where they, where they lived. And when you go and you visit... Um, the Reverend Maxwell's grave, he's actually buried in the same cemetery as many of his alleged victims. And so the, the seriousness of a visit like that is, is not only to remember his life and death um, and to, to realize that for people who loved him, for people who think that he might have been innocent of these crimes or who believed his own testimony about innocence, you know, he himself was a murder victim. And I think that, you know, the complexity of this case and the difficulty that Harper Lee had shaping it into a book come partly from the fact that, you know, even someone seemingly villainous like the Reverend Maxwell was actually, you know, had a distinguished career in many different ways and then left behind individuals who were not only related to his alleged victims, but, you know, who watched him be gunned down, you know, because his mm -hmm. life ended in an act of vigilante justice. And so, yes, he was an accused murderer, but he was also a murder victim. And so it's, it's quite a lot of valences around any given character or even, you know, the lawyer who represented him. Our conversation so far has, has made him seem a little villainous, too. But, of course, you know, he'd had this tremendously interesting liberal career um, as a politician before he settled into small town lawyering. And so I just think it must have been hard for poor Harper Lee. You know, what she didn't find was a straightforward story where there was a villain and a hero and you just needed to plot their interactions. Mm -hmm. um, and any time you really sit to think about this case, it's tremendously difficult. And, and there are a lot of emotional contradictions in it. Um, and so, yes, I mean, that, that was palpable to me from the moment I found out about it. But of course, any time you, you really think about any of these characters and how they interacted with one another, there is a kind of emotional seriousness to it that you, you confront not only as a journalist, but, but just as a member of a community when you think about what it might have been like to live through these crimes or to, to live through these cases. To me, I'm a professor of film and I teach screenwriting. It just seems like such a, a, a given, screaming out film to be made. Uh, have you been approached uh, by <laughs> film companies or producers yet? Well, I just think it's so interesting. So, you know, your reaction to the material is that. And, you know, I had known from some of these letters that Harper Lee wrote at the time she was trying to write this book that a lot of the people she interviewed wanted to know, like, who was going to play them in the movie and, you know, would it be on TV or would it be a film? And what's even more interesting is when you go back to the original coverage of the Maxwell case, you know, you go and you read the Montgomery Advertiser or the local newspaper, even the reporters who were reporting on it as it happened said it felt like a film. 
And when you go and you read the trial transcript of the vigilante's trial, so the man who murdered the reverend, the district attorney, when he makes his closing argument, says, ladies and gentlemen, we are writing the last chapter of a book. And so it is one of these cases that was just always kind of conspicuously super real. You know, it felt yes. like it was a movie. It felt like it was a television program. And so, you know, I, I think it would be interesting to see that happen. I, of course, you know, was envious all the time of the idea, you know, this is a nonfiction book, so I couldn't, you know, fabricate or invent things or, or go much beyond speculation where I love the idea that a movie would kind of answer the unanswerable questions about how the Reverend did it or why he did it or, you know, would stage the kind of satisfying interactions between Capote and Lee or between, you know, Lee and the lawyer at the heart of the story. So I think it would be tremendous fun. Um, but yeah, not not yet. <laughs> As biographers uh, discover when they are writing about the deceased, there's this curious thing, I would imagine, where you feel a connectedness to those who are gone, and yet mentally you're constantly having a conversation with them or, or a would-be conversation with them. If you could have spoken to Harper Lee, what would you have liked to have said? Oh, gosh, I mean, I would have said very little and asked a lot of questions. Oh, you're a good reporter. <laughs> yeah, um, but no, I mean, I'll tell you, what, what would I have said, you know, once I asked? you know, the million questions I have about, you know, everything from, you know, what kind of ink pens did she use to how did she take her coffee? Um, what I would have said is, you know, writing doesn't have to be a misery. And I think that actually one of the most heartbreaking aspects of the book um, for me in researching it was reading these letters both from her and kind of about her that people who loved her wrote. You know, she was she was a tremendously unhappy writer, and mm. she even had this self-reinforcing notion that, you know, if the work was good, you had to suffer for it. And if you weren't suffering, then the work wasn't good. And it's not the kind of writer I am. I really enjoy it. I love mm. to interview people. I love to sit down to write. And I just think one of the things I wish I could have said to her, and I, you know, it would have been before I was born, it would have been in 1960, right after Mockingbird came out, I would have sat her down and just said, it doesn't have to be a misery. You know, yes. that that is not one of the essential ingredients of good work, because I think that that was such a self-reinforcing notion for her. And I think that for those of us who love To Kill a Mockingbird and wish that she could have written 20 more novels like it, one of the most grievous aspects of her story is to realize that she truly felt her own unhappiness was somehow contributing to her abilities as a writer, and that that was a necessary condition for the novelist if the work was going to be serious and good. I really like your jovialness and uh, positiveness uh, and just outlook, and I'm delighting vicariously in knowing of your of your success. And I just want to ask you, how does it feel to have your you know this baby not be stillborn, but very much screaming and alive and getting the attention of the world? Gosh, I mean, it's it's just remarkable. You you spend time working on a book, and if you're lucky, you know, you get to have sources you talk to about it, or you have friends and family who are so supportive. But you really do wonder if anyone at all is going to read it, and it's just been such a delight um, yes. to get to know that the characters who, you know, consumed my mind and just, you know, to whom I devoted the last four years of my life, it's just so nice to know that they are delighting and entertaining and flummoxing, you know, so many readers. So it's just, just been a tremendous pleasure. Well, Casey Sepp, this last hour with you has been a tremendous pleasure. Your book is truly unique. I love, as I said before, the double tier aspects, looking at Harper Lee. Um, there's certain questions I didn't ask you deliberately and intentionally because I want people to go out and buy the book and to find oh, out other matters. So there's so much <laughs> more folks so much. listening uh, to learn about this. And if you think you've just had a, a little, you know, a, a modicum of taste of what's going on in this book, wait till you get it. So thank you so very much. We've been talking to Casey Sepp, who is the author of Furious Hours, subtitled Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. You've enriched us, and I am so very, very grateful for this time you spent with us. Blessings and good yes, fortune. thanks so much. Take care. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content, and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, yours truly, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. 
Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.